Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This week I've decided to re-broadcast an episode we recorded a little under a year ago. And it's a conversation that I had with Chuck Todd, the anchor and I think managing political director of ABC News and the anchor of uh, Meet the Press. I feel like this conversation that Chuck and I had, even though it was right before this election season got in full swing, speaks to a lot of the stuff that people are thinking about and talking about right now. And I know it's a lot of the stuff that I'm thinking about and talking about right now. And you can hear Chuck uh, trying to figure out how to manage what had become an increasingly difficult and disparate group of uh, like leverage points and issues. And um, I really admire the forthright way in which uh, he answered my questions and in which he's trying to carry out his job. I read in the paper today that he has just told a certain candidate that that candidate can no longer just call into his show, which is a really big step and a real separator from people on the other shows. I think Chuck's job is very difficult, but I I do think that it is his responsibility, uh, as it is Stephanopoulos' responsibility, as it is all the responsibilities to call out the lies when they hear them, and to be our advocates, our voice in in the middle of uh, this political storm. So this is a conversation with Chuck Todd from uh, about eight months ago, and uh, I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm so thrilled to be sitting here with Uh, My guest today, Chuck Todd, who is uh, not only the moderator host to Meet the Press, but uh, NBC News' political director and a best-selling author of The Stranger, Barack Obama in the White House. And uh, Chuck, thanks for doing this. Uh, I I think thanks for having me. Well, we'll see. I've been been a little, uh, you know, like... I listen to all your other ones are like, boy, which one of these is not like the others? And it feels like me. (laughs) It's nothing wrong with that. No, but but I I think your story is... is, um, right down the middle of of what I'm interested in, because as you know, I'm really curious about people's journeys and how they figure out mm-hmm. what their destiny is. And, and especially people who, from an early age, had some notion of the world they wanted to live in, which you did, yeah, right? Sort of. I say sort of. It was interesting, you know, just walking around um, and spending a little more time in New York City this week. And I walked by Juilliard. And I was a music major for a time in college, and it is what paid for college. I right, wouldn't have been able to go to yeah. school without a French horn scholarship. And I remember having that, not to borrow a phrase here, that moment at some point, it was junior, sophomore, junior in high school, when I thought, do I want to go to Juilliard? You know, I thought I was good enough to try. And then I ran into somebody who was not as good of a horn player as I was, but produced a better sound. And it totally, it whatever split, there was this... You know, do I want to, I'm, I'm very interested in politics and history and all that stuff. Do I want to get into that? Do I want to try making a living as a musician? And then I, I, I thought I place, I work so much harder than this person. Um, and yet I cannot produce the same sound. There's some parts of this is a gift. I believe that in music, there is a gift. Singers have a gift. You can't teach some parts of singing. You can't teach instrumental. Even there is a tone that the horn makes. It's good to great. I had good, 
this guy had great. Were you glad or uh, like what happened? How old are you when this happened? I was 16. In, in was 16. 16. Was 16. So you kept playing uh, and, and concentrating enough to actually no, go no, to college no. on a scholarship. Absolutely. Well, because I knew that's what at this point it became. It was currency for me. I knew that was the only way I could go. My dad died when I was 16. And it was you know, it was just the only viable way to pay for school. And, and so I wasn't giving up that ticket. Right. And, and I knew that. Your dad died that year. Yeah, my dad died that year. It was always I mean, one of the reasons he pushed me to French horn. He played French horn, and and uh, when he was a kid, was he always said, "You can be a good French horn player and get a scholarship. You can be a great trumpet player and not, you know, you can be a great clarinet. Whatever it is." When he said, you know, picking an instrument, which is why um, that's such a pragmatic. It was in his in his way, but I actually got pretty good, and I always thought, and you know, in Miami and Dade County, I was, you know, doing the county this and county that and doing state. And I, but I never forget. I can't remember his name now, but I'll never forget hearing the tone on this. And I was like, well, I'm never going to be at the time. The hot name was a guy named Barry Tuckwell. He was, I think, at New York Philharmonic and all this stuff. I'm never going to be that. You're never going to be a talk. Yes, I'm never going to be that. And I'm going to be a high school band director if I pursue this. And no offense to high school band directors. It's a good life. But suddenly it was like, okay, now I'm going to use this. I got to go find. And everything became about double majoring in music and political science. But what do you think it was about you at 16 is not an age when most people can be realistic or pragmatic. Very few. Some can. But very few people could look at um, some kind of empirical evidence like that Mm -hmm. and actually recognize it for it for what it was or what it was to them. I didn't recognize... That I I didn't re- I recognized that this person was made a better sound than I did. I still wanted to find out how could I produce a better sound, but looking, there was something in the soul there, of that. There was something position. you just sort of right, and it was just a reminder. I mean, you know, and I had all the proper technique in the world. It, it had nothing to do with technique. It had nothing. It was just you realize it just was a fuller sound, and it was something in the same way. That I couldn't, you know, I thought, you know, and in looking back, I now realize what it was. But you ask the pragmatic, it, it, look, I'm a believer and everybody goes through different experiences. Um, I stopped being a kid when my dad died. Sure, you did. Of course, it happens. It is it is a and I was just having this conversation with somebody else who had parents die when they were young. It just it's just what happens. It doesn't. Now, I don't know any other way. So you do. You know, it changed. I was an only child. Um, so it changed the relationship with my mother a little bit. But um, And your dad was sick for a long time, right? He was sick. Not In hindsight, he was sick for a long time. From diagnosis to death, it was only six months. Now, going backwards, my mother and I realize, oh, all those times when we just thought he was an alcoholic, when we just thought he was drunk, he was sick. It is different. It was both. It was he was both. He was both. I mean, look, he had, a, he had hepatitis C in the 80s. And in hepatitis C at that time, they did, they called it C. They didn't know how to treat it. They didn't know anything about it. And they even said, they weren't even sure. They said it was possible. He had had a blood transfusion when he was in his 20s. It's possible it was dormant. Like, they didn't know a lot other than, and my mom thought he was just a drunk. And that was trying to, like, he needed help. So she went to work with him one day. I remember this. She saw him take. Now, he was of that generation that drank at lunch with all of his, you know. But she saw him take half a sip. And become totally and then and 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 he had also eaten red meat by the way is something you learn when your liver stops functioning red meat is as bad for you for your liver as alcohol is red meat would make him drunk in the same way alcohol would it's interesting that i read an article uh, about you where, where you said uh 
one of the drags of your jobs, you were said it half jokingly, is that you can't drink as much as you'd like to. <laughs> so I, I, I knew it's really taking all those uh, no, lessons. Because it's funny, I don't, um, I personally don't know if it's an addiction. I don't know if alcohol is an addiction or not. For you or for anybody? I, I don't know. It's certainly, I saw my dad quit immediately and not have any problem. He was able to just stop. Now, when you're told you may die in the next five years, there is a motivator that can trump all. So hard stop. But I remember asking him summer before he died. We spent a lot of time together. I said, do you miss it? And he said, I only miss the, this is Miami. He goes, I miss a cold beer at five o'clock in the afternoon after sweating all day or profusely. He said, other than that, he didn't miss. He didn't miss the buzz. He didn't miss the high. I think he drank to get rid of problems. I think, I think it is, I, I don't know if it's an addiction like I still, you know, I know different and I'm not trying to poo poo it or it's a dependency. And I think there's a difference between addiction and dependency. I buy, I buy that it's a dependency. And I can understand why you would think about it in that way. I'm not expert enough. I've taken friends to AA. I've seen it change people's lives. I'm not somebody who's, but I think uh, it's a, and so my in my head, I've worked it out as a dependency. So I don't I view it. I don't view myself. Think, uh, addiction is only uh, physiological. If you're asking if it's strictly a physiological addiction yeah. in the way that heroin is a physiological addiction. Correct. That's, it may not be, but obviously dependency and addiction are the line is so fine between those things. And then, and you, you and I aren't, you and I probably aren't qualified to have that. That's right. Yeah. No, it's, uh, but for you, I understand for you, why it would be a question you'd ask and try to figure out because if you saw your dad wrestle with this and ultimately it contributed to his, mm -hmm. uh, I know he died a, can a different cancer, right? But it but didn't immune. You wonder whether oh, look, the alcohol killed him 10 years early. I think he dies at 50 instead of 40. Okay. Without, I mean, that's basically what the doctor said. I mean, his drinking exasperated his problems. Right. But know, so you're, you're 16 and you, your dad, who you loved despite like, had and, a um, right, worshiped him, to, right? To, in, in, to this day. And it's like, and it's a, it's a weird, because my mother and him did not have that, that really, we just, it, it's, it's a difficult thing to have. Do you mean to have parents who aren't, uh, um, who aren't seeing things that way. And then you're, it's just, you know, they had, um, they, their relationship was, was different, was struggling. I don't know. It's one of those things. Um, um, I have no idea if she's going to listen to this. So, so now I'm being careful. She doesn't have to listen. She's probably um, God love her. Uh, she, she's, you know, she, she's has worked much harder in raising me than she realizes sometimes. Um, but, um, they, they just had a, they, they didn't have the, they were good friends. They weren't a good spouses. No, I, I and it just happens. And, and you had to sort of take that all in. You just take it in. Right. It, it, look, it just, what I'm saying is I don't know different. So you, I can't sit here and say, but when you ask, how do you know something and you make sort of a pragmatic decision, by the way, I did a lot of crazy stuff in high school. I didn't do it in college. Like college to me was, it's time to work. I, I still was. You know, an idiot in high school to be an idiot. In right, high school. you drank, you got. Yeah, I'm not gonna. Yeah, I'm right. not no, gonna I'm say. You, yeah, yeah. You I had a, a regular, correct uh, kid. You know, having. And so you got a lot of that out before. And by the way, a kid whose parents are dealing with that stuff and like. Well, because then you do dumb things, right? You also think you're in charge of your own life. And I probably took advantage of the fact that my mom was a space cadet after dealing with the fact that she's a widow and has to go find a new job and all this stuff. And you know, and you know, here I am, part time adult, part time high school kid. You know, you just in all the things that a 16 year old who both has independence um, thrown at them immediately. Um, but it's an interesting insight into 
the way that you process when you do your job, mm-hmm. the, the, these people arguing with one another mm-hmm. and the amount of patience that, you know, I, I know early in, in your career and even sort of, I think at the, the, the midpoint in your, in the prior show and maybe even the beginning of meet the press, you know, people I think would sometimes write about you or not. I think, I mean, people would sometimes write about you that, that you didn't go hard enough at. Yeah. No, I know people want, I know certain people want, they want me to be as angry as they get. Yes. And I won't do it. Yeah. I, I, I know that you won't. Yet, I have watched in the last, and why I really wanted to have you on, Mm because, you know, I love these moments, and I feel like you've been building to... (laughs) See, even the other way you're laughing right now. No, I know what you mean. I think I know. Because your patience seems to be running thin uh, with getting lied to. It's... That's what I would say what it is, and I don't mean to interrupt. Go. But I would say it is, I like Washington, okay? I like government. I'm not saying whether I like small or big. Okay. I'm just saying I like functional. I, as a 13 year old looked up, learned for the first time, these people seemed like larger than life figures. Is that Historical. when you read the Kennedy book when you yeah, were 13, yeah, 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 you read yeah. profiles, and, profiles and, courage. and your dad and you would talk about politics. Yes. And so I was brought up to respect. And by the way, my dad, you know, I always say I grew up in a bipartisan household. But my dad was always insistent whether, you know, he made sure I watched every part of the convention with him. You had to watch the keynote of both conventions and you had to learn all this stuff. And, you know, it is like so-and-so I don't agree with, but he gives a great speech or so-and-so I don't agree with it, but they give a great speech. You need to hear this. You need to, you need to embrace it. You need to, all that stuff. And so, but at the the end of the day, I was taught to sort of, you revere all of them. They haven't earned their reverence. And I think that that's my frustration is there are too many people that are now using politics uh, as a sport. And, you know, I know people will yell at me and say, you treat it as a game, right? That's like a criticism I get. You treat it as a game. Look, campaigns are a game of some form, but it's not drawing the best people anymore. And that's, that's a frustration of mine. And so, and then, and then watching good people play to the idiots. Yes. Good people pandering. Yeah. Drives you crazy. It does. And I, I, especially when they tell you this off the record, you know, you know, it's like, you're just, at some point it's like, this is why we have a cynical public. Right. Because, and even what I've noticed in the last six, let's say for the last year, but in the last Mm -hmm. six months in, in particular, is you starting to give voice to maybe what we saw on your face before and you starting to sort of basically say, say, you know, are, are you really uh, not going to answer this? You know, when, like, if you look at the Supreme, the idea of we, we don't have to, you know, your opinion on whether uh, gay marriage is uh, okay, doesn't, doesn't matter. But when you have uh, some governor on or something Mm -hmm. and the governor refuses to just acknowledge what the law is, which is once the Supreme Court has right. made a ruling, that is the law of mm-hmm. the land. That, that's just the law. There's sort of, in fact, even once the, their, their federal circuit has made a ruling, mm-hmm. that's controlling. Right. It's a specious argument when they start talking about state, states' rights, then it's over. Right. And I've watched you push a little and where I think a year ago you might have let it go. You go one more time now. It yeah. seems like it's starting to really bother you that they're continuing to just um, engage in dog whistle politics. 
Well, look, I would, you know, look, we came up the other week where somebody was, you know, the, the argument on immigration and uh, one of one of the Republicans said, well, the Democrats are only for immigration reform because for, for votes. And I'm like, you really believe this? And, and, you know, so my feeling is that's fine. Like that's and then, you know, some folks on the right said you I, I acted too incredulous. And I'm just saying, look, to me, it's at that point. I do think part of my job is to be in the role of the viewer. And it's like, if the viewer heard that, wait, did he say what? So my job is to say, is almost to amplify. I just want to reiterate, this is what you believe. And, um, and actually, he makes a very rational argument about it. In, in, in uh, This is Rick Santorum. He makes a rational argument that, you know, there were some parts of the Democratic Party 20 years ago that would fight these things. And he's right. Labor unions are sort of the... The, the bricks and mortar labor unions, when they had influence, did fight legal immigration. So he's not wrong, but to but he really took a, he's he's taking an interesting leap, um, and perhaps he's taking it to rationalize his position, or or to try to. Um, but it's a. But um, it does seem strange when I watched that interview, and mm-hmm. I, I, you know, obviously, if you're sitting where I'm sitting uh, as a you know, a, a liberal Democrat with some libertarian, like I think libertarianism is just utopian and it's not practical because of human nature. But if you're where uh, uh, I'm sitting, I, I look at that guy and I think, um, you know, I want you to ask him all these questions about the separation of church and state. I, it was, it's funny you say that. That was sort of, it was you know, with all these, and this goes into the sort of like production of the show these days. You know, the next five minutes, I wanted to get into that. You know, and there was a couple things I wanted to get into with him, but in particular, that it is a sort of what is the line. And actually, with Kasich, we got we started getting into the line, and he's explicitly because he's a very religious guy, and he drew a line. He drew the Kennedy line. Yes, he did. He drew the Kennedy line. Right. And right. I yes, mean, he did. And Santorum is a, now. This is where it's genuine with him. He doesn't believe it. He does believe religion should play a part in governing decisions. But they don't. He's pretty. He's a little more open and honest about it than others. On either way, than others, on, rather, on admitting that that's what he does believe religion should play a role. Right. He in believes it's um, a Judeo-Christian Absolutely. nation, right. and that 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 the law laws should. Uh, and I agree that he has. I don't think he's pandering. I don't think in a weird way with him, he's pandering. He lives that life. So I, I sort of I respect somebody like him because he's not living. He's not pandering to a constituency group. And then not living. No, he he lives it and believes it. There's difference, right? But if you had Rand on, would you ask him about the the uh, this sort of uh, apparent conflict between libertarianism and the religious right? Oh, and, he's struggling with it, right? But no one, I you know, I want they you know he turned it around and said, ask uh, you know uh, Debbie. Um, uh, what's the chairman? Wasserman De- Schultz, ask right, Debbie Wasserman about Schultz, that right. good question. But and you you just wonder um, to me it's like uh, when you talk about because I, I don't want to get off in a po- political conversation but what I want to know what's interesting to me in your from your perch being somebody who read that book mm-hmm. Kennedy wrote mm-hmm. and who's a real well, we Jack think, we think Kennedy I, mean, I know Kennedy yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. his speechwriter wrote and um, <laughs> Kennedy's idea that's right and, and I have no doubt it was when you were a kid you certainly thought it was Kennedy's totally uh, book but who is the audience because i i you know in, in your mind like who are you out there for on whose behalf are you asking these questions and 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 
How do you, in, in the role of a, a journalist like, like this, yeah. sort of decide for yourself what, where showbiz ends and the journalism uh, begins, and, or the, where the journalism ends and the yeah. showbiz begins, in terms of considering ratings, considering listening to producers? Well, look, I, I am, this is the first job I've had where I don't believe I'm judged on content first. I think my bosses would publicly never say that. But the fact of the matter is, your show is good. If the ratings are good, you deal with this in entertainment. You know, your you know, it, your movie's good if it's a box office success. It, it doesn't matter how great your movie is if it didn't make money. It's not a success, right? There are people that think that way. So this is the first time I've been judged now on numbers on show business, um, and that is a little disconcerting for me. I'm struggling with this because it is. So, for instance, I would have. I want. I look back, I remember when I was preparing for the Cheney interview, the first Cheney interview that I had yeah. with, the, with the torture report, I read all of the Tim Cheney. Every time that Tim Russert had Cheney on, he had him on for the full hour. If I asked to have even Bernie Sanders on for 30 minutes and, you know, I had the president on for 30 minutes and I had some executives thought that was too much. No, 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 no. About 20 minutes I was done. And, there, and I'm sitting there going. You know, you don't get to have the president that often for that long. I've had the t two of the longest network yeah, television interviews sure, with him. Yeah. And I'm pleased about that. And in fact, he is somebody that needs that much time. You can't do a good interview with him in eight, in eight minutes, which is something we've he and I have actually discussed. Because the first time, first few interviews we did were shorter ones. He got frustrated and I got frustrated. And, and finally, it's sort of like he realized this is the right. Because yeah. he's just a... And it's interesting. There's one of the candidates I'm already negotiating with with their first appearance. They want. They're worried. We're only going to put them put them on for eight minutes. And I said, No, 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 no. You're somebody that a we would. I think the audience wants to hear from for twenty or thirty, and they believe this person needs twenty or thirty. So it's going to be you know, which is you're going to ask the crappy questions as they say in their in their mind, and they're worried that in an eight minute interview, if you're, it, it's going to take all eight minutes to do all the the crud, right? You right. know, all the, all the stuff that they have to deal with. If you do a 20 to 25 minute interview, you're going to about, you're going to have to deal with your crud, but at the same time, you're going to have a chance to do substance. But you must, I can just even see it. This is what I'm picking up watching your show is that the frustration with the show business part of it, with that you, that, that, you know, because, because I, I can't even question the premise. Yes. To an executive, the movies is not a success if it's not mm -hmm. a box office success. Mm -hmm. But to an artist, a movie's a success if it uh, if the ideas that are in your head show up on the screen somehow. Mm -hmm. And then yes, the struggle is how do you get the financing for the next one? It creates a lot of it creates problems when the things aren't commercially viable for sure, and you have to find a way to keep like um, your family eating. But for you, I wonder because I know this matters. I watched this week when the Denny Haster thing came out, right. and you said, "I understand why." This is the first time that I can say it's very hard for me to tell the people at home, mm -hmm. these guys aren't all in it for themselves. That's right. They're not all uh, corrupt and they're not all there for the best interests of the, the people. But there's no way to know really how you would... Don't you think that execs always just push towards what they think is a comfortable middle? No, I think you're right. And look, and I think my job is to... I think their job is... look. The, the minute news divisions were put into the position of having to be financially viable on their own. Okay. That's their job. They have to answer to a boss too. So I get it. And our job is to figure out how can we find a middle ground that makes me f 
feel good and them feel that you put on. And, and look, my whole I always say that, you know, sort of my motivation here is I think politics and government is fascinating. I think the characters are interesting. I think the process is interesting. And obviously it matters. I want to try to share my enthusiasm with it with a broader audience, right? That, that's the ultimate goal. I want yes. more people engagement to sort of engagement people, in it. Sure. And I think if you get people to, you know, I think the, the great gift of if there is one legacy that Barack Obama will have universally is that he got parts of the American population that had given up on the political process to believe in the political process. They may not be happy with how it's turning out, but they, but, but now there are, there were lots of African Americans and lots of young folks who, no doubt, who simply that he got elected. They think, okay, the process works if you work hard enough at it. And so even if they're losing now in their issues, there's a whole new audience engagement. That's a, you know, that's a huge contribution to the to the American public. Whether, whether it doesn't matter whether you agree or that's a good thing, right? More people paying but attention and wanting to be involved. The, when you how do you retain your faith in when even so? Last night I was watching this Bernie Sanders story um, that he. And, you know, you can't get more liberal Democrat. So I, there's a lot that he talks about that I like. Uh, but, you know, he says this thing about uh, wanting Republicans in the primary debates. Mm-hmm. And you weren't on, I, I didn't see you on the air talking about it, but it became this huge story. By the way, I have like, it's funny you say that. I'm, I now, the, for, the, I'm thinking this is great. I would actually love to hold a 30 minute forum and meet the press, Bernie Sanders and sure. Bobby Jindal. Well, you know, because here's the thing. We have so many candidates running. That would be great. Wouldn't it be great? And there's nothing wrong with that. And you know Bernie will show up w- But you with know whoever. that the... Rep- here's the point. I'll be curious. No, I actually think now there's so many candidates desperate to stick out. That they wouldn't do a formal debate, but they would do this. They might do it. Well, that would be great. And I think it's sort of an interesting idea. And I, I have... You know, it's funny. We, we decided to go with three candidates when, you know, this week was sort of like, let's just do a whole bunch of candidates. It's a big 2016 week. And, you know, we said, let's look, roll the dice and see if they'll all go on together. Just why not? And none of them are ready to go on together. And that's fine. I get it. But I actually think this is the way to solve this. Well, we have so many candidates. How are they all going to get involved? Well, why don't you agree to do many, many joint appearances? Nothing wrong with that. It's actually healthy for the democracy. Do you think when you say healthy for the democracy, from your perch, do you ever get disillusioned Forget like yes. Do you ever just you know really just think for out of every hundred of them, there's only there are only one or two who really because you said I know that most you said did say Sunday and the, someone else on your show said you know most of them uh, are in it for the right reasons, but or just, got into it for the right reasons. Okay, yeah, but so it does change them. Well, so you're sitting there and you're. Uh, Here's what I know. We know we're both friends with a lot of the same people. You and I don't know one another, but we're friends with a lot of the same people. And so you know that when you're at dinner with those people who are very wired in Washington, Mm -hmm. they know all this stuff Mm -hmm. that's really happening and sort of the real reasons why, Mm -hmm. which means I know you know the real reasons why. Mm -hmm. But it's impossible to get the politicians to ever... I actually think, I guess my... This is where I wonder if we're going to come to a new relationship between the public and politicians, because I kind of think millennials are going to demand it. This is the upside of the millennial generation. I think social media, I think, and the only way it'll happen is I I believe that the candidate, I am convinced that the candidate that embraces being on the record all the time 
is going to get rewarded. And I don't know if any of them are prepared for it, the cycle or not. But at some point, you know, we we have this in millennials, I think, are speeding up this process where there it shouldn't be. Nobody should be given special treatment. Right. There's this idea that nobody deserves special treatment anymore. I think when a politician acknowledges that and says, I'm here, I'm all the way and basically does what John McCain did in 2000 times a thousand. Um, they will get rewarded for that by the public. And then when that happens, you could create a whole new change in the relationship between politicians and the public. And so that, yeah, it's interesting because what you're actually talking about is like a market force demanding it. You have to, not somebody to who's going to be, not someone who's doing this out of the goodness of her heart or his heart, no. but somebody who's going to do it because they want to win. They so realize badly. the only way to win in a Snapchat, Facebook, Tinder, every single, there's no shame kind of a world is to say, I'll just say all of it. It's all here. Like Bullworth or something. I, like, you know, it's it, funny you say Bullworth. I'm obsessed with Bullworth all the time. I always yeah. say, when is somebody going to go there full Bullworth? You know, I feel like. I haven't heard Ob you say that on the air. Obama. Yeah, it's because you, you say, Bull say that. No, you, you say Bullworth and nobody under 35 knows what I'm talking about. I have my own staff and it's literally, I make these jokes and it's only me and my EP that get it. You know, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're both suddenly the old guys. Um, but. You know, this we are in a time that it, it's because you asked about disillusionment. The Hastert thing has really bothered me so much because um, he really was sort of brought in to clean some of the place up. And, and you know, th then there's more to the story and you realize, boy, this is, you know, he really did enrich, you know, he really did use Congress to enrich himself. And he really is the prime example of what I fear the place does and what Washington does to people, which is they come in with the right intentions. They see every, they, where they start, they see everybody else enriching themselves and they figure, well, I ought it too, but I'll, and they rationalize it in their head. And then all of a sudden, you know, the bigger scandal for Hastert is the fact that he got a net worth from $100,000 to $3 million while in Congress. Um, and then obviously left Congress and became a, a super lobbyist. Um, now, is that Congress's fault? Is that Washington's fault? Is that the lobbying community's fault? I don't know whose fault it is right now. I mean, we have a bad system where the lobbying, where there's so much money being made. Yeah, in, but in what does this make you feel when you're the person? Because it's not that you should engage in gotcha journalism, but, but meet the press, the heritage of the show that you're shepherding. Mm -hmm. Right is i guess you know bill moyers other than bill moyers show mm -hmm. your show the heritage of you which which is uh, has continued and for, you know until mm -hmm. now as a sort of a, uh clearly a show with no commercial sort of conflict you know when he didn't tell his show enough no commercial conflicts were on that show right your show though is the one that has the heritage and history of Asking the hard questions, mm -hmm. chasing it down, doing the most research to be the most right. on top of it. And I, I, I don't know how, talk about going the full Bullworth. I mean, I don't know how you don't go the full network. Yeah. Howard Beale. Yeah. I don't know how you don't go the full Howard Beale yeah. sometimes. Or there's, a, there's a few reasons because I also, it's funny you say this. It's like you, you sort of ask, how do you not get disillusioned? Right. And I said, and I go, I keep coming back to that because I've actually had this, there's a, really close friend of mine who um, has noticed in the last three or four months that I've, it appears as if I've lost my enthusiasm yeah. for the, for the game. And I said, of course it's, it's, it's 
<laughs> that it's neither it's not working. That it's worse. You know, I'm 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 not I'm not going to be Pollyannish about this, and so I think I've reflected a a frustration. And it's like everybody is so thinking about how things appear, whether it's the president refusing to go to Baltimore and walk the streets, and you're just like, what are you doing? You're over. Stop overthinking this. Or Hillary Clinton not taking questions. Or Jeb Bush like this whole cynical way of raising hundreds of millions. Right. Of I love that, that you guys like, wrote about Hillary not taking questions. Yeah. Right. That's great. That's what I mean. So it's this whole, and you're just like, wow. We're, we're, but at the same time, I do think, and it's funny, I think if we give up, if we look like we're disillusioned and we give up, the public then, you're giving them a, a pass to give up. So there's sort of this balance sometimes that I, I do, like, you don't want to get so disillusioned and so cynical that you throw up your hands too. The public is throwing up their hands. What I feel like our job is just to figure out how to help find the solution to get it back. So I guess what I'm telling you is that I, I, I don't want to look, if I get so disillusioned where I'm ready, then I should walk away. Right. And, I, yeah, and, I, and maybe disillusion is a, um, a simpler word or like a, a, a shorthand. What I, cause what I see isn't that you're fed up with the game, not knowing you, but knowing you, you know, watching you since you first have been on television. Cause I'm, I am, I spent a lot of time. Sounds like you're a junkie. This stuff. Yeah. I watch this stuff and think yeah. about it. And, uh, it does seem like you are, that, that you're able to, it's harder for you to hide your frustration. I would say, and so that's, it's an engage. I don't see you as disengaged, which disillusionment I think probably has uh, d disengagement as a part of it. Mm -hmm. I see you as frustrated and wanting to engage. Well, you, and, yeah. you asked me who, my, who I think the viewer is. And for me, the press, I think it's a very informed viewer. I think it, it is a, if they're not opinion leaders, they're certainly, um, they're probably among the most informed in their social network, right? Whatever their social network is. And I mean, in the old form of social networks, right? They're maybe their communities at home, their churches are, these are well-read people. 10 years ago, I would have said, these are the people that they get the hard copy of the Sunday New York Times delivered. Now, nobody does that, but yeah, I know again, newspapers, you're still that guy. Well, that's good. You know, somebody has to, um, but so you say, so I do think they're frustrated, right? They're watching Washington and they missed the good old days when they thought Washington worked or thought Washington worked better. Now it turns out that some of the ways Washington worked were actually kind of corrupt, kind of, you know, there were a lot of things you didn't know. We see well, more now than ever. Well, to me, you go back to advise and consent, which was made in the what early 60s, the yeah. Otto Preminger movie based yeah. on a book. And... It's so much the way things still are. And that was clearly how things were going. And if people haven't seen that film, that's a it film worth worse. seeing. Not only that, it's funny you, you say that. The real story is, you know, so now the real story is sort of out there. There's a guy who wrote a book about this Wyoming senator. And it was about a way, and everybody thought it was about a... You mean the real advising consent story? The real advising consent. So the advising consent, obviously, is a narrative. It's a fictional account. But there's always been, okay, what was it about, right? Is it about McCarthy? And it is. But it was a different... And, and it's sort of, this is a, yeah, I'm, I'm one of my goals of Meet the Press is it's got this great brand. I want it to be in the documentary business too, sort of in the his, history teaching business. Yeah. But history that matters, right? History that matters to today. There's a lot of people doing this well. And I think, you know, why shouldn't the Meet the Press should, do this? Yeah. And the real story, it's about this Wyoming senator who took his own life. Um, the only time a senator committed suicide on the grounds of Capitol Hill. And he did it because his son who's still alive, by the way, um, and I'm drawing a blank on the name, so I apologize, uh, 
anyway, and so this book came out recently and it was written by a Wyoming state legislature who wanted to tell the full story because it had never been told. I don't know how I missed this book. I, I watched this movie once a year. It's one of my favorite movies. And so, you know, the, the premise of advice and consent is sort of uh, obviously. So well, without spoiler, the premise of the, of the thing is um, a president is uh, wants to confirm a secretary of state and then a, a new a new vice president and a no, so a secretary of state. And the president is secretly sick and nobody knows it. So this becomes very important. It has to do with succession. And uh, the what ends up uh, happening is uh, instead of the uh, Senate voting based on uh, what they ought to do, old grudges and coalitions form. And then I don't want to give a spoiler away, but the uh, or there is going to be a spoiler. So move ahead. Yeah. A McCarthy-ish uh, senator with a crew of... Um, thugs, thugs, Political finds thugs. out something yes. very compromising about okay. a senator, and then that they use it against that senator, and then that senator kills himself. Okay, this is the real life story, right? A Wyoming senator kills himself. His son is arrested for solicitation in Lafayette Park, by the way. Wow, in Washington D.C. And um, the Wyoming newspapers never cover it. Washington Post does cover it, and, and for some reason, so the senator. Call, talks the police, the the Washington police to talks them into dropping the charges, and everything. He seems fine and all this stuff. Um, obviously, solicitation of his son, solicitation of man, drops the charges. All of a sudden, the charges come back, and not only that, they force a trial. Okay, and it turns out it's two of McCarthy's sort of uh, thugs, political thugs that pressured the you know pressured the the local police department to do this um and you know so it becomes somewhat public and while the coverage in the washington post they're careful they certainly say what he was arrested for and and anybody who knows who knows and the senator is so agonized over this he, he does he takes a shotgun on a saturday morning goes into his office and kills himself leaves a note Anyway, the son's still alive, and this book is written. Son is married to a woman, um, so we can whatever that is. That is, I mean, this is the 1950s but versus today. The, this is the real life, and it really was McCarthy. I mean, what to me, this is a better. Forget the McCarthy hearings. This is the story that needs to be told to explain. You Joseph should tell McCarthy, this documentary, Joseph but uh, but the the question I would ask is if okay. That was happening. My point is, is it was worse. The good old days were not good. But yeah, they were using intimidation, uh, blackmail, extortion. For votes. The police for votes in the Senate and the House. Yes. And so what I would say to you is, I know you hold this idea of public service. Right. Uh, in you sort of still believe, and I think it ties into you and your dad sitting there talking about this stuff, mm -hmm. right? Him saying these guys are important on both, you know. But if it's always been, you know, if, ever since, you know, Preston Brooks and Charles Sumner got into their fight. Right. <laughs> if this partisanship and this crooked back dealing has always been inexorably linked to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, if there were senators who knew that uh, separate but equal was a sham, but they still gave speeches in support mm -hmm. of it because they knew that would get them votes, which we know to be the case. In some of these guys, it was. Right. Yeah. I think some know. of them believed, uh, probably had some deep down prejudice, but some yeah. some were doing it to pander. Or, you know, you look at these uh, these state legislatures now passing these uh, bills that are... Uh, 
you know, saying this isn't about uh, not letting gays marry when that's what it's about. Or look at Dick Cheney, yeah, who was, well, I know, for on the ticket with a personal view on, on gay marriage that was in contradiction with the official campaign. And yet he was sitting there trying to benefit from exploiting the issue in order to win. And if everybody knew this then before she announced and he supported her and all that stuff, one, why can't, why is it so hard? I'm just going to pick somebody. And if people send me hate mail, I don't care. And, but you know, if Michelle Bachman's a great, essentially not very bright and sort of crazy, Mm -hmm. why can't any of you ever just, directly sort of say and you could pick someone on the democratic no, say like you listen you you, you adopted 18 key, you're you're kind of outside of any version of the norm right what are you doing you know why can't you do you know her you don't i don't like at the end of the day because and this is the danger of getting to know people yeah sometimes yeah i was gonna that, ask you about that too. is that there is always a danger when you realize and and because I'll get this a lot, actually, from, you know, if I give a speech or something and somebody will come up to me and I'm like, oh, you're not who I thought you would be. And I'm like, I know I'm a three-dimensional person. You know what I mean? We're all three-dimensional people. Yeah. And and so there is part of me that says, you know, look, um, there's a cynical side of me and politicians that say they're all, they're all a little weird. It's a little weird to have to put yourself to feel good. To make yourself feel like you've accomplished something is to win over the hearts and minds of 50% plus one of whatever community of interest you've decided to run it. Like, I don't need that. I don't get it. Some people need that. So I, on some, on one hand, I can't relate to that. On the other hand, they're also putting themselves out there in a way, putting themselves public in a way that that's uncomfortable. I'm finding myself more of a public figure and I'm not always crazy about it. Um, so there's part of me that wants to res- you, you have to respect that. But when you so say, when you say, when you say do you know her? Is your point? I don't she's... know. I don't know her personally. My thing is, is that I think, I think it is, I have to be, I think I should be careful in judging these people personally if I don't know them. You know, I don't know the life they've led. I, you're right. Is that something I would do adopt 18 kids doing the foster kid thing? Is it, does it look from afar? And maybe 75% of the time, the way it looks from afar is, 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 is what it looks like inside. But I don't know. And I think that or, that is dangerous. I have a platform that if I make that judgment, okay, so that judgment, be, I, 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 and I, so I think so I have you're to be thinking careful. About fa- you're thinking about trying to be really fair to these people. Yes. All, I think it's about uh, fairness. Think, it's not about balance. And I always say that. It's about fairness. Yes. Yeah. But you're, you're, in, no, I, I think about when you, because even when you brought up McCain in 2000, and I think um, Up Simba is one of the great, you know, David Foster Wallace's Up Simba, which is about that campaign. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever read it, but mm-hmm. it's incredible. He, he covered it for Rolling Stone and he wrote like 100,000 words. It's an amazing thing. He went on the, David Foster Wallace went on the campaign bus for McCain. Right. So which was sort learn. of the lap, by the way, which is probably the last campaign that would allow a guy to do that. Anyway, and well, no and it's campaign. all about how they treat, they did, you know, but he believed that. McCain meant it. And I remember reading that thing and knowing McCain meant it and understanding the way he was, you know, he talks about what happened in South Carolina, South Carolina, right? Mm-hmm. With, and all that stuff. Yeah. But then when, when McCain made this big turn as just an example of someone mm-hmm. who sort of stood for all the stuff, I mean, you just brought it up, McCain in 2000. Right. Why do you think, and by the way, um, I could be equally, I, I um, obviously loved Clinton as Bill Clinton as president, but I, I it's clear that they've done many things that, uh, you know, you wish he's, he's in certain ways tarnished that legacy also. So I don't want to be partisan about this, but what is it? What is the mixture of stuff that makes some of these politicians, 
even especially the ones who like so you can't say McCain's not smart, not heroic, not mm-hmm. brave, not tough. But what is it that makes them compromise like fundamentally the best of themselves? Sometimes? You know, I think it's a look. I think sometimes we forget. The biggest thing we forget is they're human beings and they have the same tendencies, which is, guess what? When you get older, you get more stubborn. Shockingly, John McCain, as he gets older, is a little more stubborn. I, you know, so part of me thinks it's like this is this is just normal cycle of life business sometimes that we forget. But we apply when we watch politicians, we we don't view them as three dimensional characters. We don't view them sometimes as human beings. I say characters. Actually, we only view them as two dimensional characters, not three dimensional human beings. So I think we forget that they're just as susceptible to the same rigidness that happens in all of our lives. Right. When sometimes the older you get, the more stubborn you get or the more or you start frustrated, you get about certain things and you. But if I screw up on the job, I just make a bad hour of television. And if they screw up because they're frail, right? Mm-hmm. If, if, I, if I screw up and I start thinking about um, ratings or, boy, I hope Showtime right. will want my show back a second year, <laughs> all I'm doing is maybe, um, you know, putting an extra sex scene in that I shouldn't, right? You know, because it doesn't fit the story. But, hey, so I have to be vigilant about that. But I'm wondering for you, when you're looking at these people, mm-hmm. and yes, you're thinking about the well-informed viewer at home, but... As a surrogate for those people, I guess what I want to know is... I don't feel like a surrogate for them. You don't? You no. don't feel like an advocate for them? I know. I feel... Look, here's what I've said I think my job is, is that I'm an interpreter. I'm an interpreter to explain what Washington to the public and the public to... And, and actually what's going on in the public to Washington. So I actually feel like that that's my... That's truly my job. And do you think that's what people... You think that from across both spectrums... You feel that's your job more than allowing the sense of out- oh, it's not disillusionment you feel by the way it's outrage that you feel. Oh, I think I should channel outrage. No, no, yes. no, no. That I do believe. I do believe I should channel outrage. I'm not saying that. It is, but it's channeling. It's channeling a viewer outrage. I am. So I try. It's funny, and this is what I think. There is a fundamental debate actually in journalism about whether this is possible or not. Jay Rosen, who's a terrific media critic. Um, believes it's impossible, which is he thinks more reporters should have their own personal views. It's okay for their personal views to get involved when they're reporting. I'm don't. I want to try to create this this idea. So you channel collective out, but I am trying very hard to keep my own personal outrage out of it. And that that it, at the end of the day, if you're trying to get solutions to happen, if you're trying to to sort of force resolution on a vexing problem facing the country. If I put my own personal, then automatically you're 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 going to push viewers away. You lose away. some credibility. You lose credibility with one side, and and then but and you don't these, fully get to. Aren't people on both sides giving you enough of a reason to be yes. outraged? No, no, that no, no. That's my point: is you channel collective outrage. You channel that like I can't believe you're saying that. You know, a certain amount of people. You know, yesterday with Lindsey, or I said yeah. yesterday. I apologize for that. No, I, but it's fine. But with Lindsey Graham, he's sitting there poking the conservative base on so many issues, and I said, you know. And he, and he says, I'm trying to build a better Republican Party. And I'm going to say, and some conservatives are going to think you're trying to undermine the Republican Party. You know, so my feeling is that I should channel some of their outrage at what they're hearing. And I should channel liberal outrage at what some, you know what I mean? I think that to me, my job is to be well informed about how multiple ideologies are viewing. But how often when you're sitting there, mm-hmm. do you feel like you're being told the truth? <laughs> Oh, I always believe I'm being told a version of the truth. And I think that this is a 
this is to me the biggest, this is, so for instance, when we're having debates about, this is a really boring topic to people, but the budget and you hear, or, you know, any policy issue that costs money and people make these broad uh, assumptions, but they don't say they're assumptions. They just say, this is the way it's going to be. And the fact is, I, none of us know if either side is right on this because you have to wait to see how it plays out. And that's the part of this is everybody says, well, it's not playing out that way yet. True. But sometimes you have to, you know, they're debating future facts, which we don't know what the facts wait, are. I, but I have to dig a little more in this. And I, I, um, but I want to dig a little harder because so if that premise is true, that they're mostly telling you some version of the truth. No, no, no. Some version of what they believe is going to be true. There's a difference. What they there, believe there, is going to be true. But, there is a difference. Well, and, I, and, I, and I acknowledge well, that. But what about when you always ask them? Is Because you will ask, and I, I you know, I, I kind of want to understand what it, what it feels like when you will say, but isn't this a political, aren't you making a political decision instead of what... Oh, right. And, look, and then when there is time so when they, you know, they're, they're, just, and they're going to give you talking points. They're, they're giving, getting, they're giving talking points. And it's like, I, I, and sometimes people say, how come you don't just say this or say that? What are you I'm feeling like, when they do that? Well, I it, it, You're sort of like, well, this is a wasted interview. You're wasting all of our time type of thing. Um, and obviously my style is light, more light than heat. I'm not saying you don't bring some heat, but it's more like, cause I do believe my viewer gets it when they're being snowed. And I think my job is to make it, if they want to insist on doing talking point, we'll make them do it three times. Yeah. Cause then at the, th because then the viewer knows, yes, you know, and sometimes the viewers say, well, how come you didn't call them out on that? Well, look, you're calling them out on that. That's your job. You're the voter. I am here as a facilitator to let you know, to basically show. It's an interesting question. Would you have felt that sitting at home? Do you think? Cause I will say that is something that as a viewer, I feel, I get it. I, I feel when I'm sitting at home, you want to say, God damn it, Chuck. Uh, yeah, I do. Because Just when you get say, say that they're, they're, they're doing this to you. And it's like, yeah, why can't you say why? Cause I, I know I do this now, right? I would you say, no, I have this is not a big form and this is not my livelihood, right? Mm -hmm. This is, I do this because I love having these conversations, right. but, and I do understand when you know people, it's difficult and, and it's difficult to, to, and when you need them to come back, like it, it can be, well, I don't, it's not but an access issue. People think it's an access no, but, issue. So then speak not, to that because people do think it's an access issue. And it's not an access issue. It is to me more of a fairness issue. Look at the end of the day, I can't help what they believe. And sometimes some of them believe this more than you think they believe their own talk. You wouldn't believe some of the people that do believe their own talking points. I've had, I have had off the record conversations with some on the on both ideas sure they truly believe and, and and they don't say that but they have these they have actually concocted elaborate conspiracies in their head about some issue and you're just like you just know that's not true the government is not capable enough <laughs> right they're not competent enough to do this like i i go through this with you know i'll get people come up to me about the irs or something like that and i'm just like it just isn't happening the way you think. You know, they think it's this vast orchestration that, and that we in the mainstream media have not focused enough on it. It's just like it, it is, it is this the government is not competent enough to do what you think they've done. Yes, for, for sure. But when you know, so, okay, but when you know you're getting snow, when you know from an off the record, from either off the record or people close to somebody, 
he, you know what? He really doesn't actually care about abortion. Let's just, he doesn't, forgetting which side, he doesn't actually care about abortion. He yeah. truly doesn't. Yeah, well, that's, that's one of those. You're just like. And he's on there yeah. and you know he's saying some uh, point about it. Mm-hmm. Do you ever just want to say. I, as, a, as a viewer, like, yes. Yeah, but I well, why also, is it an appro- Why do you feel? I it's think there's not a line. I think place? sometimes I, I, I'd like to. I feel like when I think it's appropriate, I'll do it. And I feel like at certain places. No, because I felt you in the like I say in the last six months. If your friend, whatever. But your there is a line life. because I do look. I, I I firmly believe this. In that, in and this is, it is a fairness issue. Some of these people believe things that. That some people don't believe, sure. and it's like, but isn't it satisfying when you get case like when you had the governor this weekend, and he you said, "You want to know why said, a John Kasich?" And this is why you know I've had John Kasich on three times because I think he's somebody who I believe he is somebody that what he says off the records, what he says on the record, say, he may he may change how he words he's it. Not a dummy, right? But he says so. Look, you want to know how that works? Well, suddenly, yeah, I've had him on. Um, Twice in the last um, three months. Right. And because I, I know that he's giving uh, what you're hearing is what he believes. Well, yeah. So I'm watching it. And obviously much of what he believes is totally not what I believe. But I walk away from that because you pushed him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you pushed him on that question mm-hmm. about the death penalty. Right. And he gave you an honest. He he went, you know what? Because he kind of like threw his time. He went like, look, you know what? Here's what I think. Right. And he told it. And I thought that, boy, that's a great moment of political television. Because what you did was you were able by pushing, I think, and mm-hmm. m- maybe you knew he could hang. I don't know. I mean, it was maybe just you knew sort he of could like, deal with it. It just came in the moment. Like, that's the, another thing. Some of this stuff, you, you never plan for. But you almost never get somebody. I mean, I can think of all of these chief executives of states and almost never will say one way or another. Listen, yes, I believe these things. Right. But... But when I am in this job, I have to do something different. Oh, it was it was and one of those. And that was a real thing. And you did feel as if that's that that's John Kasich would say that at his dinner table. <laughs> you know, yeah, like I that. felt like okay. You know what? I don't agree with right. a lot of what this guy has to say. But if he were president, I would know he was actually just trying to do. He's got. He, he has would some... actually be trying to do the thing, the best job that he could do, <laughs> following what he felt was the right. best. You know, his own best account. Well, see, this is why thirty-minute interviews. You're going to get. You're always going to be satisfied. I really believe that. And so, and why can't you agitate to? Why can't you agitate to? Well, I'm working on it. I'm working on I'm different. Saying, are ways. you trying to yes, do that? Yes. Whether. I think some of the look, there's some candidates that are going to get that time because there's you can convince executives that there's viewer interest in that. Okay, Hillary Clinton, Clinton Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, you know, in their moments, people do want to you want a full 20, 30, 40, some 40 minutes. There's no doubt about it. And some of those candidates should want that long. If I'm Hillary Clinton, I wouldn't do a single interview less than 12 minutes because, you know, the first eight are going to be about Bill and the foundation. Don't you want to extend it out so that way? It becomes you get to have good lengthy discussion on foreign policy and a good lengthy discussion on domestic policy. And yes, a good lengthy discussion on the political trash that you have to deal with. Every candidate has to deal with. I'm not saying hers is political. Everybody has trash. Sure, of course. That you have to take out. Proverbial trash. So, you know, I think my job is to find different forums. And, you know, look, that's, you know, you have me, Tim. Tim had his own frustration and, you know, what did he have? He had a separate CNBC show where he got to do these nice, you know, he had a, I remember an hour Tim long, Russell, yeah. Yeah, Tim Russell, really had an hour long with Scalia once that you never would have been able to do on Meet the Press, but you were able to do on the CNBC show. So that, it, so that my job is, I think, to find more 
find more venues for this. What do you think he would he would think about? Uh, would any of what happened, um, Obama winning, and then the Republicans coming up with the strategy mm-hmm. of you know defiance and obstruction? Well, you know, he was the ultimate political strategist. Yes. So I think he would be um, both impressed with the strategy, disappointed in how the White House had none. To count, you know what I mean? Like, like, like you, wrote, you know, yeah. he thought about an, he thought as an operative, right? You know, and that's where it's sort of like, you know, when you sit there and lament your station, well, why don't you do something to change, change the equation a little bit? There's some parts of it maybe you couldn't have changed. But, but when you know that that's their strategy, so they've acknowledged it. I mean, it's in enough stuff that clearly that was their strategy. You've right. written about it. You've uh, right. We all doubt about that it. that was their strategy. Right. Like, um, I do think the difference in the past, even. Even when Newt Gingrich was doing it to shut down the government, it was never, ever overtly stated that they were doing this. For They would constantly say it wasn't about politics. And like no one ever leaked that it was about politics. It was, it, it was more honest. Like that's, we all knew it. That's what's amazing. And by the way, half the country was okay with it. I'm saying this thing now was more, it was like, well, so you think half the country is just looking at this like... Um, we need our team in place. No, that's what's happened to politics. And this is the larger. So how does. Yeah. Yes, this is what's changed. And I think the biggest and I say so it's funny. I actually think this is where technology has destroyed the American political debate. Um, no political party engages in persuasion anymore. Because we have so much data that we know how to find people that agree with us and, and sort of harvest them and find issues that engage them so that if they're not interested in this issue, they're interested in that issue. So the, the ra- two, the race speech though, the, Obama's race speech was, I think, Oh, it was a persuasion argument, no doubt. But Obama is a politician who was not wired for the 21st century. See, that's a difference. He wants to be a persuasion politician. Bill Clinton was a great persuasion. George you're w. Bush. Now, yes. What I'm saying is the political class, the campaign, the strategists, and the people, the operators, they are not persuaders anymore. They have decided to become uh, niche marketers. And in the same thing that has been, look, it's happening in television. It's happening. You know, nobody wants, people have decided, oh, there's an audience for this. So we're going to make a whole bunch of stuff where there's an audience for this, but not try to grow the audience. Like people don't, we're in this, we're in this mode where everybody accepts that there's, that everybody should have their own programming. Whether, whether it's fictional programming, non-fictional programming, yeah. news programming, political programming, rather than should we want to try to have a persuasion? I mean, so politics, like October, of, October of an election year used to be two candidates arguing about the same issue. Now, October of an election year, you, you may have one candidate this late in the cycle on one side talking about reproductive rights because they're trying to engage women to get out the vote. And you may have another candidate in October talking about gun rights because they want to make sure gun owners are engaged. You know, rather than them debating the final big issues of the campaign, if whatever the top three issues are. And so when you don't have when you don't win via persuasion, when you don't feel like you've won that way, then you have no incentive to govern that way. Right. And that's why we don't have. So when people say there's broken politics, I say. No, what, what's broken is we have politicians that don't practice politics anymore. So how do you find hope um, when this has mattered for your whole life to you in such a deep I way? I think that the, the, um, there's part of me that thinks the public is starting, to com- it's, is, it's starting to register its complaint about this. That there is, now they're doing it by not participating. You know, voter turnout's been going, we went, we were on a 20-year 
actually uptick in voter turnout and engagement. Just it started with Perot. Perot was this great. Um, he really, in in some the ways, first campaign, he really right. seemed like an it, authentic. And it wasn't just about him, but it actually got the whole country thinking. Oh, the process can get. You can mess around and change the process. And the two parties responded. You know, the Republican Party became less stodgy and elitist. They tried to become more populist. The Democratic Party, Bill Clinton said, oh, you know what, fiscal issues, we're going to be, we, we want to be a responsible governing party. We want to disprove. So both parties changed arguably for the better, meaning they both became, you know, they both sort of solidified their 50%. Now, the problem now is, is it sort of we're, we're in a, we're in this stalemate and I think this lack of, of persuasion. So now you have the public again, we're back on a downtick and it all started with the debt ceiling, right? It, that, that's where it began. You can pinpoint it and turnout was down in the presidential turnout's been down for every mayor's race in the country. I mean, we had an open race for the mayor here in New York city, open one in LA and they were lowest turnouts in like 40 years, 70 years, the ele- 70 year low for the midterm elections and more money spent than ever before. Well, that was a, the New York campaign was very dispiriting. No, but let's see, but they, because why they did a, everybody went niche. Nobody, there wasn't a large persuasion campaign. You know, one thing, you know, de Blasio was literally having one conversation with, with a set of voters and, um, uh, yeah, Thompson uh, was Thompson having another, was, right. and, and they were both, and they were both niche. They were all niche marketing. <laughs> No, it's true. It was, um, no, it was very dispiriting also because you could just feel uh, the lack of uh, anyone having genuine um, But this happened in LA. This happened in, in um, states. This happened in the nation. It's, it's happening I, too I, much. I, I just want to ask a couple of like typical uh, questions from the show and then we'll, yes. we'll end this. Um, one is, uh, you know, you, so you go to college, you love this stuff, you get an internship and then a job, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you left college without graduating. Mm-hmm. And... I'm wondering if it ever in the beginning caused you any worry or if oh. you felt fraudulent in the beginning. No, I like never felt not, fraudulent because I was always going back. You mean you were always trying? It, 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 I have. I How have, many more credits do you have? Well, I have more credits than you need, but not the right credits. I have like 136 credits. What do you need? Um, calculus and rocks for jocks. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's like some like science Science thing. and, and, and math. One like, math and yeah, one science One credit. science. And it is sort of one of those things you're just... You let, and this is advice I give young kids, don't, you know, I, I had a financial, literally four years ended. I still needed six credits. I had too many credits because I was a double major. I had all these music credits that I yeah. ended up, you know, but I had suddenly GW, I had no scholarship expires at four years, you know? So then it became a financial. I said, okay, I'll go get some money and then do this. And I followed a woman out to Colorado and I got a few, I took two, I needed, I, actually, I think it was 12 short. I got six of them done. The documentary I want to see is you in Colorado for those, that time. I did, I did a University of Colorado. Fun, I imagine that it, might be a fun thing to watch. Can I do, you know, it's funny you say that. that. It's funny you say that. I lived in Boulder, yeah. um, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, look, the relationship didn't work. But it must and, have been fun. It, well, I worked at a bookstore. Right. It was actually the one, it was the, it was the one sort of screw around period of my adult life. How long did it last? Only six months. So that's it. You've six months where you like weren't on the tra- right. on some trajectory to, toward where, where I just success. was like, you know, wasting my time. And I say wasting. These are all, you know, Boulder is one of these places where enormously smart people who are all in that stage of life where they're just like, what the hell am figuring I figuring it out? We're, we're all figuring it out. Maybe getting help to figure it out in different ways. Yeah, sure. Mental. Now mental legally. Now legally now in legally. Colorado. Right. And, um, and, you know, live in a cliche boulder life there for six months. But then I realized, nah, this isn't what I am. And I literally drew, after 
she left me for a cowboy. Um, that's what happens. <laughs> that's what happens. You that's know, what happens. you could, I could never take the call, the girl, the, the girl out of Colorado. And, yeah. And, um, Cowboys are my weakness by Pam Houston. If people haven't read, you ever read that short no, story book? No. Uh, I'll say, yeah. You gotta read it. Um, and I drove back and it was, uh, I'll never forget. I made great time simply because it was the closing arguments of the OJ trial. And, you could listen to that in the radio. It was the greatest radio companionship I ever had. And you can't, if the gloves don't fit. Oh yeah. I listened to all of that. It was like, I was like, it was the closing arguments on both sides, which of course, remember they went on forever. Oh, they went on yeah. until 10 or 11 on East, East coast time. And one Marsha Clark. So man. yeah, it became very, it was very good. Um, road trip, uh, uh, right. And you were going time. back knowing, okay, I'm committing to this life. Yeah. I'm just going to go find, I guess I didn't a have a job, a journalism job, journalism job. And you knew I'm going to be around politics. I th- oh, definitely. It's Washington. And uh, you're going to go get those final two? Do you, do you tell your Before kids? My, do your kids yeah, know? My ki- I don't hide it from them. They know where I went to school and all this stuff. It, put it this way. I'm, before they go to college, I'm going to get those six, this, those six credits. You are? Yeah. Good. And, yeah. and My well, wife's not happy about it. She's thing, concerned that it's, gonna, that it's like the last thing she needs is more reasons why I'm not at home. I know that you, no, but you need the college. For, for your kids, if you're going to tell them that, I mean, I actually don't think people need a college degree, but... Uh, well, you go to, here's the thing, I argue, you go to college to find out what you're going to do and find out what yeah, you're going to be. who you are. Who you who are. And I, I, look, I'm not, I'm not rationalizing it. It's stupid that I didn't finish. It, there, there are reasons in the moment that made sense. In hindsight, if I could have a conversation with 22-year-old Chuck. You would say finish? Just really because of the mental Take anguish the six months and finish because of the mental anguish borrow Not the money you in any way but because of the mental anguish yes it does bother me you know people have said of course it bothers me and I you know people that and whenever they're mad at me because the reason people know about it is because I'm very honest about it sure. I don't hide anything right but like every once in a while some you know when when people want to criticize something I do well that's what you get for you know you're a college dropout you don't know what you're talking well, about well that's elitist no 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 it's a, right it, 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 I just laugh at it and then let it go but you know what it's like I need to I'm very good at finishing when I started. It's the only thing I've done in life that I didn't finish when I started. Yeah, no, I finished. I went to law school at night and I knew I was going to be a lawyer by the second year. And I was like, I have to find a way to finish because I knew if I didn't, I would be, I would just be wondering about it. Like, well, why, why wasn't I person enough to finish? And last thing, I know you can't say, and uh, I don't want you to uh, talk about where you are politically, but I would ask you if you could change something structurally mm-hmm. in other words not not a policy but mm-hmm. if you could structurally change things about the way that the the government works mm-hmm. i don't know if that means term limits i don't know if that means changing but uh making more clear the balance between the supreme court and the you know the three mm-hmm. branches if you could change something what would it what would it be um structurally? i would say there's two things Structure change number one is I think every government agency should sunset every 25 years and you have to reimagine and you force a government agency to re- right. because the VA is a scandal of technology. It wasn't a scandal of individuals. It was Cleveland Clinic. Right. Mayo Clinic wouldn't have allowed a system like that. But the way our the way Congress funds government, the way go- it, the, they're just, look, bureaucracy and red tape That's do brilliant. matter. Yeah, I would. Now you don't do them all at one time. No. Literally, every every year, some agency rolling. should be re because um, some of them because some of this stuff it's like whoa, we we started a Department of Labor at a time like should it be rethought? You know, we don't think about that because as soon as we start in it, and this is a big complaint. So I would I would sunset and make them. Uh, the other thing I would do is. I would make everybody do congressional districts like the state of Iowa does it. Which is how? Which is they take into account competitiveness. 
it is the one state that may that not just communities of interest, but they want to make they try to create. They have four now, not just geographic communities of interest, but also to make sure they're fairly competitive. It's not in partisan. It's not. It's they've not, made it not partisan. It's not control. partisan. You have Iowa, Arizona, and California, sort of the three preeminent ones that are the least partisan and how the lines are drawn. Iowa is the one that actually takes competitiveness of the to make sure. There's a check. So guess what? If a Republican goes off the deep end, they're going to get voted out. There is enough Democrats to vote them out, vice versa. If a Democrat goes off, there's enough Republicans to vote them out. That would create real accountability on Capitol Hill. And then the other thing I would do is ban, um, I'd raise the salary of members of Congress, raise the salary of their staff, and put a permanent ban on lobbying. Permanent ban on them lobbying Ever afterwards. Lobbying after. If and you've been in Congress, that's right. or if you've been in the executive branch of government. I think in some high level, you, do, yeah, high you, draw, level, sure, you draw, draw what it is. And I mean, like chief of staff, right. too. I would sure. Say, You're, I, of course. Gone. Do not let it. We have, that is the probably the single most, because term limits isn't going to solve it. Term limits will empower the lobbyists. Term limits in states, wherever you go where states have had term limits, the most powerful entities, because the lobbyists don't have term limits. Right. Okay. That's the issue. So they're there. They're evergreen. So you make it more competitive. I don't mind if somebody wins for 40 years, if they've had to work at it. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think there should be permanent. If you've been a chief of staff or an elected member, you should not ever be able to lobby. Because it, it, look, every reform turns into a problem at some point. That does happen. You know, the seniority system in Congress was actually a reform to clean up Congress. Now it's now it's a burden and now it's a bad thing for Congress. But we have got to the idea what, lob, what what the special interests have done and how they have perverted the process. The health care bill was written the way it was done to avoid conflict with special interests. Barack Obama did not write the health care bill he wanted. He wrote the health care bill that he could get passed. And it wasn't that he could pass Congress, that he could get past the insurance industry. Right. That's insane. Yeah. Actually, when you think about it, we have a system that, and by the way, that's how all the laws are written this way. It is about writing around a special interest group, not around a constituency, not like I would be at least feel better if it were written because you were in a way to. Now, do you think your viewers know this? And do you think that, enough? That the I don't media know. Spends enough time no. really going through in a forensic way. Let us explain to you and in a you, nonpartisan you, right. way. Right. You want to know why there's a mandate? There's a mandate because. The insurance industry killed healthcare reform in 1993, and they had to come up with a way to have the insurance industry have skin in the game. Guess what? And this is, I do say this, I'm, and, I've talk, and, and every Republican knows it in their heart. The Supreme Court could overturn healthcare in this next thing, and, and it won't matter. The insurance industry so changed the rules, they will force Republicans, essentially, to pass a different, to pass something that keeps the law in place because they've already changed all their systems. You know, this they was, don't want to restructure. Yeah, they don't want to restructure. Thing. They restructured their whole because the bill really is the keep the insurance companies in business act. And again, from Obama's point of view, hey, it's the best he could do under the system that we have. And he's right. But that doesn't mean that's healthy. It's not the best system we could have come up with. Well, here's what I know. I know the fact that you love uh, Bullworth <laughs> and Howard Beale. <laughs> tells me that I have to keep watching. Oh, good. Because you think at some point well, it might happen. it has to happen at some point. I think it has to because you're clearly aware of where you're sitting. Oh, it is. But it's also you do wear the burden of the show a little bit. The legacy. The legacy of the show. It is a, it's a weird. It's, it's, it's heavy. It's heavier than I thought it would be. It just is.
it's not just Tim. It's the longest running television show. And you know, as I joke, I just want to be sure I'm not the last moderator of Meet the Press, right? When you're in charge of the longest running television show in history, you know, scary. It's heavy. It is a little heavy. All right. Well, wear it lightly. Thanks for being here, Chuck. This is uh, you can find <laughs> Chuck. Uh, watch Meet the Press and these documentaries that he's going to find a way to get made. You can find him on Twitter. Your Chuck, just, just your name? Chuck Todd. You can find me at Brian Koppelman. Uh, my email address is themomentbk at gmail.com. Uh, I would say don't send me movie ideas or TV ideas because those will go right in the garbage. Also, <laughs> please don't send me political diatribes. I'm sure I was wrong and you're right. You're right. I swear. You're right. I know you're right. So you don't have to write me to tell me you're right. Uh, thanks for listening. See you next time. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you.